This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The Leopard 2 Tank of Politics podcasts smashing through the special military operation of right-wing nonsense. I'm Alex Andreu. On today's show... Whatever you do, don't call it a comeback. Boris Johnson ineffectually cosplays being Prime Minister, a scandal after scandal about him surfaces. So pretty much what he did when he actually was Prime Minister. Plus, identity wars. The Tories have brought in new rules on voter ID. But two-thirds of people don't even know it's happening. Are we on the way to Georgia-style generational gerrymandering? And in the extra bit, exclusive for Patreon backers... Following Nadim Zahawi's carelessly forgetting about an estimated £27 million down the back of his sofa, what was the panel's most expensive mistake? Let's meet our esteemed panel. Naomi Smith is an escaped accountant and chief exec of Best for Britain. <laughs> Hello, Naomi. <laughs> Recovering accountant. Recovering. <laughs> They didn't hold me prisoner. David Lammy has been setting out foreign policy at Chatham House. The Shadow Foreign Secretary argued for a normalisation of our relationship with the EU and got flack both from Brexiteers, convinced this means rejoining, and Remainers, convinced it doesn't. What do you make of his approach? Uh, I thought his speech was very strong and he was speaking with a kind of gravity that you need in a foreign secretary and mm. that has been so palpably lacking. I was thinking back through Cleverly, Truss, Raab, Hunt, Johnson, of course, <laughs> Hammond, and I think it was probably William Hague who resigned in, in 2014, I think. He was like the last sort of statesman-like foreign sec we had in the role. And Lammy led with hard truths, um, you know, new age of global competition, the world is dividing into blocks, Which block does Britain feel it's a part of? None at the moment, lost, disconnected. He spoke about how the things that we depend on are increasingly being used as weapons against us by authoritarians. And his calls for linking up domestic and foreign policy and the reinstatement of foreign aid back to its previous level of GDP as being both the moral as well as the smart choice I think should be music to the ears of internationalists like us, even mm. if he didn't go full-throated for rejoining the EU. And I think what he probably did effectively was to communicate Starmer's vision of you know, making Brexit work better than Starmer himself has managed to do up mm. until mm. now. So all of that talk about recognizing the damage of the bad Brexit deal, being outside the EU, but a leader in Europe again, reliable partner, dependable ally. That all sounds good to me. And uh, as we know, all of those things would be a prerequisite were we to want to join the EU. We need to be all of those things again. And I think a sort of adult realization, which I don't hear a lot from our camp, that rejoining 
any bit of the EU is not just up to us, that no. it's up to them and will need, is a process, basically. Absolutely. It's not something that you can announce and yeah. do in a first five-year term. And, and it seems to me to believe that is actually quite damaging. Yeah, and um, yeah, you're right completely. Uh, and I do hear more of that now. Uh, you know, there are more people, you know, in the you know, rejoin camp who accept that it's not just uh, up to us. Um, now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be making a case for rejoining. I think there is a recognition slowly that we have behaved, we, the corporate we of, of Great Britain, has behaved so appallingly towards Europe over the last six, seven years that it, it really would, you know, take quite a lot um, of, of proving to them we changed our ways for them to want to offer us a route back in, let alone a membership that was so generous to us as the one that we had without having to adopt the euro with our big rebate, etc. I think it, it wasn't only Lamy's speech that impressed me, but how he handled Q&A. Yeah, I thought he was better in the Q&A, actually, yeah, even better yeah. than the speech. And he really did listen to and then answer the questions. Now, that ought to, of course, be the minimum standard you expect from somebody <laughs> on a panel. But as we all know, uh, how often uh, that doesn't happen, particularly with politicians. So I think he communicated like someone very at ease with his brief, with a genuine conviction, you know, in what he was saying. And like I said, just really very strong Ros Taylor is Podmasters contributing editor and the host of the new documentary series, Jam Tomorrow. Hello, Ros. Hello, Alex. Ros, the term Jam Tomorrow, I found out, comes from Lewis Carroll to mean something promised that never materialises. You're looking back to post-war Britain and the version of this country that was promised then. What's on this week's episode? Well, this has been quite a fascinating thing to look into because during the war, people had really high hopes for the future. It was a little bit like we saw during COVID when people said, right, this is just such a transformational experience that we can't go back to how it was before. We've got to change things. Now we see how important the state can be and we're going to change that. And they really hoped that it would precipitate change. For Some, some of them hoped that it would precipitate the end of class distinctions even because there was a whole narrative going on around Russia because, of course, Russia was at that time on our side uh, towards the end of the war. And uh, it was, in some ways, by particularly an intellectual class in Britain, seen as an admirable place where class distinctions had broken down and socialism was, was developing. Of course, didn't know at that time exactly what Stalin would do. So we didn't have the benefit of that knowledge. But they really hoped that the stoicism that they showed during the war would be rewarded afterwards. And so the whole idea of jam tomorrow comes from that. And the NHS, of course, which was founded in 1948, was a bit of a fulfillment of that promise. You got through the war and look, we've got something for you now. But it was also designed to stop a revolution. I thought actually the archive stuff in the episode was incredibly touching. The speeches from back then, the hope, the aspiration for this thing that they were creating and, and the notion that even as they were announcing it, they didn't believe it was going to happen. Exactly. Even they thought it was a sort of impossible dream. I, I found mm. it just incredibly affecting, actually. Um, l- let me move you on to another um, more current subject. The universities minister, Robert Halfen, just wrote to chancellors 
at universities warning them to stop offering so many places to medical students. I thought the UK was short of doctors. What's going on? Yes, I mean, the UK is short of doctors. And in fact, 2022 was the first, was, was an exceptionally difficult year in which to get a place on a medical degree. You know, there were loads and loads of people with top grade A levels who were turned away. And some of them went abroad to train instead because they couldn't get places here. This seems crazy on the face of it. And to be honest, it is crazy, but it's all about time horizons. So of course, it takes a long time to train a doctor, seven years. By the time they're getting into, you know, being being part of the workforce, it's it's a decade. And we simply are no good at thinking that far ahead in terms of the NHS workforce. There has been no long-term planning at all. We just assume that we're going to be able to hire enough people from abroad in order to fill those vacancies. And of course, that is what we have done historically. And now that's got a lot more difficult because of, need I, need I say the word? Um, <laughs> it also costs a lot to train doctors. You know, we're talking, in order to expand the scheme significantly, we're talking billions. And you have to have sufficient placements as well for near the universities so that they can near the universities so that they can do their training properly which can be also mm. hard to organize when you have a, such a shrunk workforce that you know who's going to train these doctors when they're just yeah. trying to keep the NHS going themselves and that is the explanation basically for why they are trying to keep costs down right mm. now and not train more doctors i think as well in the back of their minds is the feeling well in 10 years time I won't be in government. This will be someone else's problem. There's nothing, this, doing this, fixing this problem is going to do nothing for the crisis right now. So why bother fixing it? And of course, that's immensely cynical, but I think it's the case. I love the notion that long-term planning is this government's Achilles heel, as if they're acing short and medium-term planning. Our guest this week is a former Labour MP and Deputy Mayor of London for Transport. She's now a prospective candidate for her home seat of South Swindon. Heidi Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Swindon is sometimes the butt of jokes, including in the office. As the future candidate, uh, what is the rest of the country getting wrong about your hometown? Because you were actually born there, weren't you? I was indeed. So, yeah, back in 1975, um, I was born at the old Princess Margaret Hospital in Swindon, went to school there, did my A-levels there, and um, all of my family live there. Look, I think Swindon is a great town that has a very proud history, um, but it's fallen on some tough times in the last few years, like lots of towns up Mm. and down the country. It's about um, you know, 55 minutes on the train from London, surrounded by absolutely beautiful countryside. The people are um, ambitious, welcoming, want to look out for their neighbours, for their community. But we've, we've got a town centre that's a little bit down at hill, lots of empty shops. We've got a fantastic... Like outlet, everywhere. Like everywhere. Mm. We've got a fantastic outlet centre um which has taken all of the footfall away from the town center really and so all of this stuff around changing shopping habits hasn't properly been thought through uh, by the local authority and we've seen honda which uh, used to employ about 5000 people and was honda's main european manufacturing mm. base of course they put the padlock around the site about 18 months ago and What's coming in in its place um, aren't really the sorts of jobs that people want to see in Swindon, not very well paid, not a lot of job security. And so it, it is a great place, 
and I'm loving being back home. Uh, I split my time between uh, being in Swindon about five days a week and then I still do some work for Transport for London. I sit on their board and so I'm in London a couple of days a week and uh, yeah, really, really, really enjoying getting stuck back into campaigning and possibly going to find myself back in Parliament if the um, if the winds are blowing in the right direction when we come to the next general election. They appear to be currently, I think it's fair to say. You founded the Labour campaign for the single market in 2017. What do you think of Keir Starmer's co-opting the take-back control slogan? So as Keir has been very you know, clear about, Brexit has happened now. I think the vast majority of people in the country have moved on. People were very, very scarred by all of those painful debates that often happened within families as well as across communities. And so he has been pretty clear about the fact that we're not going to be reopening that. I'm not sure that the European Union would want us back in straight away, having gone through everything that's happened over the last couple of years. Personally, I think we do have to find ways to remove the barriers to trade that exist with the European Union. The Labour Party's made some sensible suggestions about practical steps that could be taken around a new veterinary agreement, having alignment of standards around food and agricultural um, products, looking at regulatory alignment in other sectors where it makes sense. And so, you know, when I see and speak to businesses in Swindon that are actually struggling to export because of all of that new bureaucracy, my sense of it is that the public want a pragmatic and sensible debate about how we can reduce some of those barriers. The the deal that Boris Johnson negotiated was a dud. And so there's a lot that can be done to improve the situation without going back into the European Union. Mm. Grassroots Labour is a very different and by some estimates smaller proposition now to what it was under Corbyn. Does the party have enough people on the ground to challenge in marginals like Uxbridge or Yorsey? Yeah, so in my seat in South Swindon, the town is split into two constituencies, mm. South Swindon and North Swindon. In South Swindon, we've got about 600 party members who are signed up. And then we also have a large number of people who volunteer for us that aren't signed up members of the Labour Party. Yeah. And one of the things I've been struck by in the last couple of months is the number of people that have been proactively getting in touch with me by email, on Twitter, on Facebook, saying I want to come and help. And so when we are knocking on doors and delivering leaflets, we're not just reliant upon those people that have a subscription to the Labour Party. We're also building our base across the community. We could always do with more foot soldiers, as it were. Mm. But I'm really pleased with uh, the activity and the enthusiasm that exists in the local party at the moment. New members joining, new people getting involved. And so lots of hard work happening at the moment. We're about we're out knocking on doors about eight or nine times a week at the moment. Oh, so wow. I'm definitely getting my steps in, which is fantastic. <laughs> Very good. Pleased to hear it. Before we get started, a quick reminder about our live show back at the illustrious Leicester Square Theatre in central London on Wednesday, the 15th of February. You are guaranteed a quality evening of political analysis, score settling and silliness with Ian Dunt, Ros Taylor, Aisha Hazarika and little old me. 
It's always a brilliant night at the Leicester Square Theatre, punctuated by walk-on music and video provided by producer Alex. How will he follow My Heart Will Go On, featuring Boris Johnson and Liz Truss? Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets and Patreon people, your discount still works. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast if you'd like to sign up and help us build another submarine for the Podmasters Navy Reserves. First up, some things in life are certain. Death, unless you're a Batman villain. Taxes, unless you're Nadim Zahawi and Boris Johnson refusing to be scraped off this country's political shoe. He (laughs) pretends he is still Prime Minister. Most of the right-wing press pretends he is still Prime Minister, while the rest of us try to forget he was ever Prime Minister. Miraculously, whenever he gets in trouble, lots of dirt surfaces in friendly papers about Conservative colleagues. I don't think I need to gather everyone in the drawing room to explain that mystery. The murderer is always Mr. Scruffy in the number 10 bedroom with a roll of gold wallpaper. (laughs) And I can tell you that for a 100% ding-dang sure. (laughs) Naomi, I hear from my network of spies that Johnson may be the reason we're seeing so much about Zahawi. Um, Have the briefing wars between the Tory faction started up again? Did they ever stop? They never stopped. (laughs) (laughs) And let's remember, like, this is something that's hurting Zahawi and Sunak equally, uh, arguably. Um, And Johnson is a pretty vindictive kind of guy. If you cast your mind back to July, Zahawi was one of the last men in Johnson's bunker. And he hung in there just long enough to be appointed chancellor. And then he plunged the knife in. So I'm pretty sure Johnson hasn't forgotten that. And indeed, we then saw Johnson shaft Zahawi when Johnson withdrew from the race to succeed Truss two minutes after Zahawi had published a piece in The Telegraph saying that Britain oh needed Johnson God, back. I'd forgotten that. You're right. Total humiliation. <laughs> and the installation of Sunak was at a minimum supposed to steady the ship and end all of this backstabbing. And it is clear that what we had in October and November was a temporary ceasefire rather than any kind of peace deal. Well, it was either that or chaos with Ed Miliband, so I don't know why you're you're so negative. So how we allies argue that in this order, his private tax affairs are private, it's all settled Mm -hmm. now anyway, and HMRC is a non-ministerial department, so there is really nothing to see here. What is the actual transgression, do you think? Right. There's, there's, there's probably quite a lot to unpack, <laughs> so I'll try and be brief. Um, and I will also try to ensure that I don't expose myself legally to the reportedly extremely litigious Nadim Sahawi. Uh-huh. So it has been reported that he did not pay capital gains tax on the sale of his shares in the polling company YouGov that were worth around four million pounds to the public purse. Uh, reported that he was potentially under investigation for all of this while Chancellor, as in the guy who sets tax rules, <laughs> reported that when questions about when he was questioned about it, he tried to silence journalists with threats of legal action. I, I think that's more than reported. We've seen the letters. Reported the former taxman has now settled with the current taxman with a multi-million pound fine. 
and reported that he claims it was carelessness, it wasn't intentional, which I think to most people just sounds like. Do you remember, like in the particularly in the nineties, when Tory MPs would get themselves into a, a, a compromising situation, and this was parodied very well by David Williams and Matt Lucas in. Uh, one of their little Britain sketches where the, the politician and his wife come to give a statement at the gate. You know, I, I tripped just at, at the moment <laughs> that my trousers fell down and I landed on top of the banana that somehow very accidentally made its way up my bottom. You know, it, it, it really sort of had that, that kind of ring to it. Um, and just hit so many of the squares of, one rule for them, bingo, and, you know, other rules for the rest of us, um, and exposes just how rigged the game is if you're really rich. Mm. As we record uh, Wednesday evening, Zahawi is still in post, although I'm getting strong lettuce energy. Um, <laughs> the, the party chairperson is the vanguard of elections. The locals are now just over three months away. Can Sunak afford to replace him? Can he afford not to? I think that's the key question. Um, and the delay is presumably because of Sunak's weakness. And we, we talk about this on the podcast nearly every week now. This is a man who has a very large majority in the House of Commons, but his party is so fractured and he is in such a weak position uh, that that he, you know, he, he gets boxed into corners on everything from hiring and firing and legislation. As a plutocrat, Zahawi is apparently quite popular with the Parliamentary Party of the Conservatives. So Sunak really can't afford to make any more enemies there. You know, he's eyeing up a showdown, remember, with the ERG over the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and the the trust faction. Yes, there is now a trust (laughs) faction um, over his refusal to taxes. So I think it's looking increasingly inevitable that Zahawi will go, but I don't think the decision has got a huge amount to do with the elections in May. You'd expect that their strategy for that is well underway and involves more than just Zahawi. I mean, I, I say that, but as I'm saying it, I'm like, but does it? Do they? Do they have a strategy anymore? Mm. I mean, you know, this is a government asleep at the wheel on so many fronts, so maybe they're even asleep at the wheel of their own election preparedness. Mm. Ros, on the other scandal front, the appointment of Johnson's mate Richard Sharp to the position of BBC chair, at a time he had reportedly arranged and attended a meeting between Johnson and a would-be rich creditor, the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Commons Committee has recalled Sharp to appear before them. Why? Well, essentially because he appeared before them two years ago in January 2021 to answer questions about his impartiality and independence, as was right and proper for him to do, uh, given the the importance of the job he was going into. And he gave a series of pretty unedifying responses. If you have time and you're a bit nerdy, I recommend reading the transcript because it's quite interesting. He batted off a lot of the questions. He was asked specifically about his cosy, in the words of one of the committee, relationship with Boris Johnson and with Rishi Sunak. And he was asked about what he donated to the Tory party. He said that he had already donated £400,000. So there is no question this guy is not already a clearly a Tory supporter. Um, but he did not, of course, mention his role in brokering the enormous loan that has been reported. In fact, 
When he was asked, he specifically said that he didn't receive encouragement to apply from Boris Johnson for the job of BBC chair. And it was entirely on his own initiative that he was uh, going after the job. So I reckon the committee will be asking, given what has now been reported, do you really expect us to believe that, Mr Sharp? In his defence, I don't know that it's much of a defence, but in my previous life, I would say that my experience of such circles is that they are so incestuous when it's pointed out that there's inappropriateness going on, they genuinely don't get it. They don't get why it's wrong to have a private dinner with some rich guy that's about to become a donor and the guy that's about to appoint, appoint you to a lucrative and powerful position. They simply don't understand what's wrong with that. They, they, they just don't see it. Yes, and that, of course, is on Sharp's side, that it will be very hard to prove that he was appointed on the basis of uh, reportedly offering this loan. And mm. that may well prove to be his saviour. Yes, the rules state, of course, that it's not just lack of propriety that's a problem, but also anything that could give the appearance of lack of propriety. And I think that means you have to declare very broadly anything that could come up. And that might be his his weak spot. Something I've never understood, um, and uh, my background, as you said, at the top of the show was in accountancy. And so every year we had to do Bribery Act training, even if you know, the legislation hadn't been updated, you had to keep on top of it. And it's always confounded me as to why the Bribery Act does not apply in all of the Westminster scandals we have around cash for access, cash for peerages, etc. Because the threshold there, I mean, if, the, if this was a, a totally, you know, corporate situation, yeah. it, it would be a very clear breach. Interesting. Um, Former number 10 comms director Robbie Gibb, another Johnson appointment to the BBC board, has made no secret of his belief the Beeb is too woke. Johnson says the BBC has disappeared up its own fundament. How damaging is this period to the credibility of the broadcaster? Well, this is only the latest example of the Conservative Party trying to run down the BBC and trying Mm. to sow distrust about what it does. I mean, Robbie Gibb is a former BBC editor, uh, a Westminster editor. He's worked extensively there. And then he left and he had a brief stint at GB News, which doesn't appear to have worked out. So um, that would suggest um, where he's coming from. Johnson, of course, himself has worked for publications that see the BBC as a rival. And importantly, especially since the arrival of the Internet. Before that, you couldn't really say that the Daily Telegraph was a rival to the BBC because one was a newspaper and the other was a broadcasting corporation. Now they are fishing in the same pond for readers Mm. in many ways. Mm. And that has intensified the efforts of a number of people working for uh, the press to run the BBC down, partly in order to try to ensure that regulators... Uh, make sure that it isn't a threat to them in the future, that it can't start trespassing further on its patch. You may remember uh, maybe about a decade ago 
the BBC was ordered to take down tons of recipes from its website because it was seen as potentially competing with other publications that also published recipes. And this is the kind of thing that we're talking about, the the competition, the, the, the threat that the BBC poses as a competitor, as a publicly funded competitor to these newspapers. But of course, it's easy to trash the BBC. But to trash the BBC is to trash confidence in the BBC as an institution that tells the truth. And it's very interesting going back to the transcript of Richard Sharp's appearance before the DCMS committee that we were just talking about. He was asked about whether he thought the BBC was biased because they, the committee uh, chair said, look, you're a Brexiteer and uh, it's quite fashionable these days, isn't it, to be a Brexiteer, Mr. Sharp? Um, do you think the BBC is biased? And he said, yeah, yeah, I think it's biased both ways, actually. I mean, there's lots of studies that show that on the one hand, it was stuffed full of Remainers. Its coverage was inst- it was biased that way. But on the other hand, there's other studies that say it was biased the other way. And, you know, it's important when you're thinking about impartiality to, to, uh, to acknowledge bias on both sides, which is basically a a waffle, but it it shows it's yet another example of the ability of people in Sharp's position and um, in the Conservative Party to basically challenge the idea that the BBC is even capable of impartiality, and especially of impartiality when it comes to Brexit. Heidi, three months from a local election, possibly a year and a half from a general election. And we see much of the press still throwing its weight behind Johnson. Yet every polling expert says his return might actually make things worse. Whom would Labour prefer to face? Well, I think the the current Prime Minister has been exposed to be quite an insubstantial figure, to be honest. And I think uh, the more that people see of him... The, you know, they're not impressed by him. And I was, you know, if I'm being totally honest, when he took over from Liz Truss in that period, I I sort of took a deep breath and thought, okay, um, you know. People, Quite a slick operator. Yeah. Like and, that. you know, clearly he had a record during COVID of delivering the furlough scheme. And whilst there were lots of people that fell through the gaps around that and didn't get the support that they needed, uh, I think a lot of people did feel very grateful for that support during COVID. Mm. But I can categorically say that the damage was done with Liz Truss and that he is not popular on the doorstep. The thing that people know about him when you speak to people is that he's loaded. Um, It's the first thing that they say. And that's the only thing that they say. Uh. Really, I visited a further education college and spoke to about three or four different groups of 17 and 18 year olds. Apart from saying that um, at least he's lasted longer than uh, lose trust in the lettuce. Um, that was their only observation on him. So I'm feeling pretty confident going into this set of local elections um, and the next general election at the moment. I mean, the only thing I would say about all of this introspection and infighting on the Tory benches is that it just prolongs this period of political turmoil that yeah. we've had. And that's not good for the country, is it? Because we it started with Brexit, um, which was a self-inflicted problem. We then had COVID, which we had to respond to. We then had you know, three prime ministers in three months at one point, and now we've got this infighting. And, and for me, I just feel that all of the really big issues that people care about out there, whether that's how to get care for elderly relatives, what to do about upskilling the next generation, yeah. how we transition away from you know fossil fuels and tackle climate change, that when they are fighting like rats in a sack... 
the big issues aren't being dealt with. And so I think there is frustration out there about all of this at the moment. Um, They're asleep at the bloody wheel, Heidi. They They are are asleep at the wheel on every issue that bloody matters. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, Johnson was pictured across the table from Zelensky with a British flag between them. He's effectively freelancing in a really sensitive area of foreign policy. Can Sunak do anything about it? Should he? I think he's worried, isn't he, about upsetting his backbenchers again. But I do agree with you um, that it's, you know, it's not good government and it's not good for our standing in the world. I think I think other countries look at us and can see that we're in complete freefall as a country mm-hmm. at the moment. And having um, Boris Johnson running around, taking it upon himself to act like some sort of ambassador for the UK is uh, the last thing that we need. I think it's quite clear that what Johnson is trying to do is to rehabilitate himself. And it's no accident, of course, that as ever he visited Ukraine just when he was being criticised in the media again. It always happened when he was PM. It's happening again now. He is determined to stay in the game in a way that might seem absolutely shameless and frankly ridiculous to, to most of us but which he is absolutely getting away with. I mean, Mm. I know what we all think of the Daily Mail, but the Daily Mail devoted its entire front page to a piece by him telling Germany to send tanks, uh, leopard tanks to Ukraine. And Germany duly sent leopard tanks to Ukraine. And he will have regarded that as a personal victory, (laughs) even though, frankly, it's not down to Boris Johnson article in the mail at all. But he will be hoping that people have made that link. He is absolutely out to come back. And we should we should really, I think, be aware of this and not assume that, that this guy's ambitions have died. They have not. Some media beginning to pick up on the fact that at the centre of so much number 10 dysfunction recently is top civil servant Simon Case. Ros, traditionally it's considered bad form to criticise civil servants because they can't defend themselves. Is this different? It is different because Simon Case has not been acting as a civil servant should do. (laughs) And as a former member of the civil service, Alex, I'm sure you see this particularly acutely. Civil servants need to speak truth to power privately. Case does not seem to be capable of doing this. He is a creature of the Conservative Party and the PM rather than a servant of his country. I mean... Just for a couple of things, he started leading the inquiry into Partygate, despite the fact he'd been parting himself. And he took on that job while knowing that he'd been, you know, uh, present at these parties. And he was apparently told of Richard Sharp's involvement in securing this £800,000 loan for Johnson. But he doesn't seem to have acted on it in any meaningful way. It is clear that he is too close to the Conservative Party and the PM, and is not acting in the impartial way that a civil servant should. Yeah, and and the unforgivable sin, in my view, which often goes unmentioned, is that he allowed the sacking of Tom Scholar from the Treasury, mm-hmm. which could have been acted as a break on the trust-quarting clown car, and he just removed that at a time when he should have been taking actually the civil services um, side and advocating for continuity. I think that's unforgivable. It's all right. Heidi Heidi can bring him, reinstate him, bring him back when she's uh, running <laughs> uh, cab off. 
Naomi Sunak promised a new year of integrity, professionalism and accountability at all levels. How would you assess the performance on that score so far? What, what's the scale? Is it 1 to 10? If <laughs> so, it, does it I'll matter? give him a 2. <laughs> does a 2 it... for two fixed penalty notices. <laughs> How's that? Very good. Heidi, finally, Sunak got battered again on Wednesday during Prime Minister's questions. Last week, he stood up and said there was no outstanding question on the Zahawi affair. Then he ordered an investigation because there were outstanding questions. This week, he pledged not to sack Zahawi until the ethics advisor reports. That seems to me another hostage to fortune. Was his political inexperience given enough thought by the MPs who backed him, do you think? No, I don't think it was. And I think that is demonstrated in what, you know, the way he is handling this situation at the moment. I think there's the question of his inexperience, but I think there's also the question of the turmoil in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Mm. And those two things together are quite a toxic mix. And he needs to uh, you know, have a really good experienced team around him from a political point of view to manage this. And I'm not sure that he is getting um, good advice or is capable of taking a strategic decision. I can remember, I think it was um, it was a former Conservative MP, I'm trying to remember who it was, perhaps David Liddington, saying that one of the skills in politics that you have to develop over time is the ability to see round corners. And I don't think he has that. He just seems to be sort of running headlong into um, you know, brick walls, um, albeit then stopping at the last minute and trying to sort of pull back before it's too late some of the time. I just think that the public listening to this will see these astronomical sums that um, Zahawi owed yeah. HMRC, more than most people will earn in a lifetime of work. And I think the problem for them is that it underlines this sense that the current government are totally out of touch yeah. with the public, um, totally out of touch with the reality of people's lives. It reinforces all of that. And I actually think Sunak would have been much wiser to have acted swiftly because my sense of it is that, you know, ultimately they're going to be finding a new party chairman. I could be wrong. Um, but I, I, I don't think I this think is going that away. It's inevitable. Yeah. Um, and, and which is why I found it weird to hear him say that in PMQs this notion that he's just far too honourable a guy to sack someone before the process um, has uh, made its way to report stage, which I think is astonishing because the ethics advisor is there to advise. It doesn't. It's not a sort of farming out of a prime minister's um, ethical judgment on issues which are crystal clear. Nobody says you have to go to the ethics advisor and give them however long to report on an issue. You know, you don't. He obviously doesn't take any of that advice when he's appointing these people. He only seems to um, ask for it when he's about to sack people. We'll see. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Sarah Devlin says, I note that George Eustace is the latest Conservative MP to inexplicably decide he's not going to stand in the next election. Who would the panel like not to stand in 2024, or whenever it is, and who will you miss for good reasons or bad? When you're standing in an election against an incumbent, Uh um, there's always a sense of if the person has been a good constituency MP, they've responded to emails, helped sort out people's personal problems then you're perhaps facing a little bit of an uphill battle. And you know certainly the person I'm up against is Robert Buckland, Buckland. Um, who had previously served um, in the cabinet and has quite an interesting record in terms of his decisions around who to back, uh, Sunak versus Truss. And he was the only cabinet minister, I think, to change his mind that Liz Truss would be a really, really good idea. That didn't work out so well, did it? Um, but I have to say, even though you know I disagree with his politics vehemently, and I think he should be ashamed of what he did in backing Liz Truss, I think he is respected within the constituency as being a hardworking local member of parliament, and it would help me if he didn't stand next time. So if there was somebody who was going to perhaps go off and contest a a, uh, a different seat, because perhaps there is um, a, a, a new seat that's being created in Wiltshire, um, then I, you know, I, I would counsel Robert that it might be a good idea for him to, to go and look at those opportunities. I hope you're listening, Bobby. How about you, Naomi? I'm really going to miss... An MP that maybe listeners aren't so familiar with, um, but his name's Paul Blomfield and he's the MP um, for Sheffield Central and has decided that he's done his bit in Parliament and uh, and isn't restanding. And this is not a slight on the new uh, Labour candidate there who I'm told is absolutely brilliant, which is a relief because they are stepping into big shoes and Paul is um, the most fantastic Democrat, internationalist, calm, sage, thorough, and an all-round good egg. So I I shall miss him very dearly. This is a bit of a controversial one as to who I wish wasn't resanding because they are far from being the worst Conservative MP. But it's Peter Bottomley because, and maybe he's not, I mean, he's father of the house, but I haven't heard that he's not resanding. And I say it for one reason only. At Best for Britain, a lot of what we do is asking people to write to their MPs and say, you know, please, can you back this? Can you tell the government you want them to do this, that and the other, whatever it is, vote for a certain amendment, a bill. And Peter apparently does not like being contacted by his constituents <laughs> because we get angry emails from him at any time we do any of that sort of activity. And I sort of get the impression that he thinks that it's an inconvenience to represent people and to have to actually hear from those people. Um, So, yeah, I reckon time for for Peter to do something else. How about you, Rose? Well, I mean, Harriet Harman will be missed. Um, Obviously, she's retiring and there's going to be um, a very exciting 
contest in uh, Camberwell and Peckham um, involving our fellow, oh God, what now presenter, Mieta van Buller. So that is good news. But nonetheless, you know, she's uh, an amazing person who's done a great deal for the Labour Party. In terms of who really needs to go and isn't, I, I think I've asked this question before, and I, my answer is going to be the same. It's Sir Christopher Chope, the Bournemouth. <laughs> yeah. The guy's uh, yeah. 75, so, you know, I, I feel now is the time to go. And he is just such a reactionary, blowing with the wind in the most, in the most depressing way, member of parliament. Uh, someone who is always standing up trying to filibuster, you know, a uh, a bill that might might make some progress is 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 not is not contributing to parliamentary life in a meaningful way. And it would be great if he were voted out at the next election. And I hope that with a bit of a move and shift in terms of demographics and Bournemouth becoming younger, perhaps that might happen. Agreed. And if one of them could also take Bill Cash out of the chamber with them as they go, I would be personally very grateful because if I see him settling in for another bloviating speech on some obscure constitutional issue that he gets fucking wrong anyway, that makes me want to set fire to my hair just to restore feeling in my head. So you don't feel strongly about that at all then, Alex? No. I'm a mellow kind of guy. (laughs) Now, a few months ago, the Tories revealed their new voting plans and what would count as a valid form of ID to cast your ballot. It included the extraordinary detail that an older person's bus pass would be allowed, but a young person's rail card would not. Election officials warning that the plan is undeliverable for May's local elections have been ignored, Polling officers saying this is setting them up for confrontation with the public have been ignored. And a new poll suggests only a third of voters are actually aware the rules are changing and only one in ten have been notified by their local authority. But what was it that first attracted this hugely unpopular government to measures that disenfranchise voters? Ros, the change... It's not a secret. It's not exactly zealously pushed, but it's not a secret. The government is putting out ads explaining the changes, even on podcasts like ours. So why do so few people know? Because like most big changes in this country, it was waved through by a big Tory majority and never properly discussed or explained in in the public arena, largely because there was no justification for it. You know, there's been an enormous amount of very well-informed criticism of uh, demands for voter ID, which has been entirely ignored. And this happens too much. It's happening, for example, this week, when it was leaked to the sun that Jeremy Hunt was thinking about raising the retirement age for people born in the 70s to 68 in the budget. Now, this raising the retirement age is a big deal. It's already been raised a lot um, since I entered the workforce. And now they want to raise it again. And maybe it's the right thing to do. Maybe it isn't. But contrast our situation with that in France, where there are riots in the streets or, you know, let's say big demonstrations, I should say more accurately. There haven't really been riots yet. There are enormous demonstrations, enormous amount of public discussion about what the right retirement age should be. It is not a measure that should be pushed through as part of a budget. 
it's completely inappropriate. And the big parliamentary majority that the Tories enjoy has enabled this to happen. And it's an entirely unhealthy aspect of our democracy. In most European countries, carrying photo ID is par for the course. It's the system I grew up with. Why has this been such a particularly British bet noir? We have a very interesting relationship with policing in this country. Uh, I mean, we, we more or less invented modern policing and the idea of policing by consent, which is hard to explain and quite complicated. But ultimately, it comes down to the idea that po- the police force should not be an arm of uh, the military. It's an arm of the state, yes, but a police officer is also an ordinary person. Now, this may feel increasingly redundant in the era of the the Met and what the Met does, but it's nonetheless an idea that has gripped the public imagination. And part of that is the assumption that you shouldn't have to prove your right to be in Britain. There is no way that everyone should be able to stop you and say, papers, please, or to show me who you are. And perhaps that's about being an island. I don't know. Um, there may be something quite complicated psychologically going uh, going going on there, but of course this is completely unsustainable in the modern era where we carry forms of ID all the time, just not necessarily ones that are recognised by the state, but which we nonetheless need in order to do very basic things like take a bus or you know uh, get, get use a cash machine or something like that, and perhaps that's why because we carry all these forms of ID that it feels okay to demand yet another one for voting. But it's not, and not least because, as you point out, the range of ID that we can use to prove our right to vote is so limited. And And patchy. And patchy. And people, you know, when when I pointed out on uh, Twitter recently that I was just about to send my passport off because I need to renew it, and that means I have no photo ID because I don't drive. And people said, oh, it's okay. You can um, you can apply for a citizen card, or it's okay. You can have a postal vote, but it's not okay. It's not okay that I should have to do those things in order to have the right to vote. And I think that people w- will be quite shocked when they turn up to polling stations in May in the local elections and find that they are being turned away. I don't think the government has any idea of how much unhappiness that's going to cause. Can I just say for balance, as an EU citizen who after 30 years did have to prove that I have a right to be in this country, I would quite like a piece of paper saying <laughs> that uh, that that's OK. Naomi Best for Britain fought hard against this because it was seen as an indirect way of disenfranchising voters, especially young voters. Now that the law has passed, has there been a lot of work to neutralise its effect? As far as I can see, the introduction of barcoded stamps has had more of a push than voter (laughs) ID. I mean, I know you mentioned that there are ads running, but what is needed is a mass, mass, mass public messaging campaign, similar to the one that they had for, do you remember, Get Ready for Brexit, Mm -hmm. which they embarrassingly ran for three months ad nauseam before the deadline then got pushed back yet again. And we we do talk about, you know, the the motivations of suppressing non-conservative voters. A recent survey for Open Democracy found that Tory voters were as unaware of the new requirements as the general public and Labour voters at around 60%. So it could yet come back to bite them too. But they are more heavily postal voters, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Election officials at every level are warning there is simply not enough time to get everything in place in time for the 4th of May. Is there any chance government might still reverse on this or is that gone now? I don't think so. Um, I think this is likely a bit of a, a, a test run, a dress rehearsal for a general election. Um, so if there's unignorable issues or a really massive backlash, they may make adjustments. But I think they'll hope they can muddle through, get some data on how successful it's been in uh, suppressing opposition voters and uh, in future have the ability to point to a successful election with voter ID. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't recommend listeners deliberately not bring ID, but Absolutely would not. actually a mass failed rollout of this law give the government pause for thought? No. Um, considering that we know or we you know, strongly suspect that their goal is to suppress the vote, um, which is demonstrated quite clearly by the Oyster card example, you know, young people's rail cards not allowed, senior rail cards are, I don't think uh, it's, it's likely to happen. I think it's win-win for the Tories. If people don't bring ID, they won't be allowed to vote Labour or any other opposition party. If they do, then the scheme is a success. So the only thing I think that's going to make them think twice is if their vote is dented more than opposition votes. And this will be really hard to gauge considering where the polls are. But the best and most effective way to protest is to vote the Conservatives out at every level of government. They need a period of opposition from every major thing they run, whether it's large local authorities, whether it's uh, Westminster itself, they need to go away and reconsider who they are and what they are because Britain is broken at the moment under them and we, we need a hard reset. Switch us off and back on again. <laughs> Heidi, this policy seems designed to frustrate people more likely to vote for you. Is Labour helping voters make sense of these rules even if you don't agree with them being put in place, seeing as they are now in place? Very much so. So in Swindon, we're writing our next set of leaflets to go through doors and we are setting out what the new rules are. I'm also going to be running a campaign at the Further Education Colleges and Sixth Form Colleges to address this issue mm. of the disproportionate impact upon young people. Um, and this is hot off the press, actually, because no one's received one of these yet. But I've done a little postcard in the style of Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I don't know whether you remember those um, black Relax. and white T-shirts. Yeah. So this one says, um, Heidi says, vote, don't let the Tories stop you. And then you turn the postcard over and it's got a little QR code. And if you scan that QR code, pop your email address in, you'll get a step-by-step -step automated email from me saying exactly what you need to do. And I think, so I think there are loads of problems with it. I think, as everyone has said, nobody's really aware of this. Uh, the process for getting one of these so-called voter authority certificates is really complicated as well. So if you genuinely don't have any of the acceptable forms of photo ID, you can apply for this thing from the local authority. I'm just not sure that people are going to do it. I think the problem that this is intended to address is actually minuscule around voter fraud in this country. It's a really tiny problem. And I'm just left feeling that this is really something that Donald Trump would have come up with mm. <laughs> to try and manipulate who actually goes to yes, vote. Like I said, so it's sort of Georgia 
reminisce exactly it, isn't it? no that's completely right so we are going to be doing some work on this because i am worried about it i think we should be making it easier for people to vote not harder and i am worried that lots of people are going to be disenfranchised as a result of it Labour wanted to introduce ID cards that would sort of bring together everything instead of having this patchwork system. Should this be revived as a policy or would you look to repeal voter ID if elected? So personally, I wasn't involved in politics at the time of the discussions Mm. about uh, ID cards in the last Labour government. But I can remember having a conversation with my husband at that time, who uh, also is uh, an Austrian citizen. And we were both saying, well, we'll sign up for the pilot scheme. I personally didn't have concerns about it at that point in time. I think what we, the Labour Party will need to do is actually understand what happens at this election. I hope I'm proved wrong. I hope we're all proved wrong and that this isn't going to be a massive blockage to people actually going to vote. But I do think that if we've got problems and we get a Labour government, we're going to have to consider repealing this legislation because I do think it's such a fundamental attack on our democracy. And if that isn't a reason to vote Labour, nothing (laughs) is. (laughs) Final question, and I declare a personal interest. EU migrants like me still have no right to vote in general elections. Shouldn't the franchise be based on residency rather than nationality? I've got a lot of sympathy for that argument. Obviously, as a, a, a European citizen, you can vote in local elections, used to be able to vote in European ones. Exactly. Um, and so. I do personally have sympathy um, with that point of view. Um, And, you know, in Swindon, I've got a very large uh, Portuguese Goan population that lives there. They um, contribute to the economy. They work hard. They're an important part of our community. And for them only to be able to vote in local elections and not a general election doesn't really seem right to me. And that's the show. Thanks so much to Heidi. Thank you ever so much. Naomi. Thanks, Alex. And Roz. Thank you. Don't forget the first two episodes of Jam Tomorrow are out now. And stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads plus lots more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello and a huge thank you from me to Kevin McAvoy, Andrew Lewis, Hugh Griffiths, Chris MTBC, Catherine Dogrell, Richard Bowes, Warren Riddle and Vicky Creed. A big shout from me to Ruth Lowbury, Hannah Reichardt, Catherine Scherech, Mike, Mary Myatt, International Bright Young Thing, Philippa Baker and Dawn Brown and Ian Girvan. And finally, all the best from me and thanks for your support to Mark L.S., Keith Poole, Mike Chowney, Catherine Turner, Sophie Ha-Ha-Watt, Amara, Mark Gannon, Simon Porter and Michael Dunn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented 
by Alex Andreev with Ross Taylor and Naomi Smith. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Katja Tomashevich and Jack Erbertson. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit exclusive for Patreon backers. This week, as Margaret Thatcher once explained, the problem with tax is that eventually you run out of Nadim Zahawi's money. He called a <laughs> three million plus um, that he owed to HMRC a careless but not deliberate mistake. And just like Britain under trust, he had to pay the idiot premium. Once we figure out how to do that for the rest of the Tories and their donors, it's bye-bye cost of living crisis. Still, spare a thought. We've all done something silly, which has cost us a fortune. And this week, we're going to find them all out. Naomi, as a former accountant, do you think the <laughs> timing of the Zahawi affair, as millions are doing their tax return for the year and settle up, is particularly unfortunate? Yes, especially because the self-assessment tax rules changed. So you have to pay in advance um, to kind of bring self-assessment taxpayers more into line with PAYE and you're sort of paying as you go along rather than kind of a year later. Um, so I think there are about 12 million people that do a self-assessment tax return. You know, we know that a lot of people leave it to the last minute. So it is not great timing. Um, and as we said previously, totally underscores what is surely going to be the epitaph of the Conservatives that have been in power for the last 13 years. One rule for them, another for the rest of us. On everything, including seatbelts. On everything. Now, as someone responsible for an organisation that campaigns on such issues, do you feel particular pressure to be squeaky clean? Why do so few people in public life seem to feel this pressure? Because they get away with it or they face no penalty when they get caught. Um, mm. Or, you know, the penalty is is a really low bar. Um, you know, Zahawi has been asked to pay back what he did not pay. There was no disincentive, so so try your luck. You know that that seems to be it. And to your that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to backers on Patreon for as little as three pounds a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, oh God, what else? Every Monday morning, it's the one New Year's resolution you won't regret. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.